Remember the first time you saw a race car on an open trailer? Maybe it was full of dirt, tire marks, and other battle scars. You wondered where it had been, and more importantly, where it was going next. Every open trailer has a story, and we're here to tell it. Welcome to the Open Trailer Podcast. This time out on Open Trailer Podcast, it's stage number two of my conversation with Derek Nealon. I'm your host, Andy Austin, and for the next half hour or so, we'll learn about what it's like to be a Mainer and still work big NASCAR. The amount of detail that goes into Derek Nealon's scheduling is incredible. You'll hear about that. Also, the infamous 250 race in which Derek was behind the wheel and racing Brad Keselowski. Things did not go well. Plus, we'll talk about what Derek's up to this season, which by the time this episode drops, has just started. Open Trailer Podcast directly benefits Maine Vintage Race Car Association. The amount of people who have inquired about our club in just the past month, month and a half, is astounding. And the texts, the private messages, the new members. Matter of fact, membership is where the rubber meets the road. You want to support what we do here on Open Trailer Podcast, then you hit up MainVintageRace.org. Become a member of Maine Vintage Race Car Association. Your annual dues allow allows us to preserve the history of racing in the state of Maine and by preserving that also means storing and some of these artifacts are priceless so we want to make sure we store them correctly the cost to do that totals well into the thousands every single year of course the mobile museum and events that we put on like Summerfest at Wiscasset Speedway and the Maine Motorsports Hall of Fame your contribution allows us to do what we do, which is continue to carry the message. Again, MainVintageRace.org. That's MainVintageRace.org. Let's dig into stage two of Derek Nealon. Enjoy. But you, you're still a Maine resident. And this blows my mind. And this is something, this is a move that you made pretty early on in your career. And it's a, a testament to how much you love the state of Maine. You were living in North Carolina, but decided to move to Maine, yet keep your job in NASCAR. How were you able to do all of that? So with spotting, uh, one of the fortunate things, for the most part, is a lot of the teams have cut the spotter out of working in the shop for whatever reason and when I went over to Ganassi that was literally all I was hired to do was to be their spotter for their cup team and if they had an Xfinity team to spot for that so, so you're so hired forth. by the company correct okay and so I was I was spotting for them but the only thing that held me down there was flying on the team planes on Thursdays or Fridays whenever we were we were flying out I didn't have you know the only time I would ever need to actually be in the shop would be for team meetings and those were you know getting f- more few and far in between as I was getting years down the road with them because it's like hey Derek what happened this weekend I don't know the car went in circles <laughs> right <laughs> right I mean I, it's the same I, as last week yeah, I don't know what you want me to do like right. I didn't blow up the motor you right. know or yes. whatever <laughs> yeah. um, he didn't turn right right <laughs> to really like break it all down the biggest thing that got me to move back to Maine uh, was I met my now wife Carly of four years 
um, who is from Maine. We didn't go to school together or anything, but we just knew each other for years. And I happened to reach out to her while I was living in North Carolina. And I actually was coming up to Maine in like a month or so. And when I came up, we hung out. Um, things went well. And then I started trying to come up more and more when I when I could. You know, if, if I had days off during the week, I would fly up. And she would come down to North Carolina and visit me as much as she could. I'd go up and visit her as much as I could. And then it just got to the point where we did that for about a year and a half. Hmm. So everybody pretty much knew that this was going to be a serious thing. So I went to our uh, team manager and I said, hey, listen, you know, at the at the end of this year, I'd like to try to figure out something to be able to live back in, in Maine and, and fly out. Because there's at that time, there was about eight or ten other spotters that actually lived in other states. So you weren't the first guy to do it. But what I think it was really incredible about that move is that you weren't nearly as tenured as you are today. So how much inside of you was like, okay, I have to go to my boss and say, I want to live in a completely different part of the country. What if he says no? I was, uh, I don't know what I was going to do. Honestly, did you have that in the back of your head? Though? I did, but yeah. still to this day, I was basically going to be like, all right, hey, listen, like, it's either I move back or mm. you fire me. But right. at that at that time, I really don't know what would have happened. But who are you spotting for at this point? I was spotting for Kyle Larson at that point. Okay, and I think I was our third year, our second or third year in together. I would say then. So, so my, you built that cachet, right? And I was probably that was probably my third or fourth season with Ganassi total at that point. So you know they'd already been treating me great. They had the trust in me. Hmm. Um, so I don't know what I would have done, but I mean, thankfully I didn't have to end up worrying about yeah. that. Uh, we got through the season and literally we finished Homestead. I flew back on the team plane that Sunday night and Monday morning because the car was, I already had it packed up. Carly was down there. Um, she was waiting for me. And as soon as we woke up on Monday morning, we headed south or sorry, headed south, headed north. And um, at the in between all that throughout the summer, actually, Throughout the spring and that summer, her and I, whenever I was up, we were looking at houses. We had bought a house, so when we drove back up from North Carolina to Maine, uh, we already had our house in Sebago, Maine. And wow, yeah, it was pretty pretty wild story how it all how it all went down. But it's it's worked out great. Obviously, I think the question you're kind of asking, mm. I wasn't as tenured then as I as I am now. And, I mean, I was petrified my first year. I'm like, what am I going to do? Well, let me tell you, the first year, we wasted more money on the travel stuff. Now, Carly works for me because I, when I moved back to Maine, I had to start my own LLC mm-hmm. because they weren't going to uh, have me insured anymore and stuff under them. So, yeah, how does that work as a spotter? You have to own your own equipment, your own radios? and So, I do have some of my own equipment that I do um, for, like, ARCA and then uh, RCR, Richard Childress Racing, now owns my uh, equipment for the that I use for Cup, Xfinity, and trucks. Uh, a lot of teams pretty much do that, hmm. and then spotters have their other equipment for doing like their side stuff. What happens if we get a snowstorm on the first week of March and you have a race season and you're in Maine? Weather in Maine, it's especially a mess in March. No, that's a great question. So the way our season falls is obviously we go to Daytona first, right? Like the hmm. Daytona 500 is the... First race of the year, it's the biggest race of the year. Um, I normally give myself a two-day grace. So if I have to be down there for February 10th, I normally leave on like February 7th. But then after the first like two weeks or whatever it is of the season, we go out west where Vegas, Fontana, and Phoenix. So when we go out there, out west, obviously from Maine, that's a lot of flying. Yeah. So there's only been one year, I think, since 
since I've moved back to Maine or been living in Maine and doing the commercial flying uh, that I think I've actually done the back and forth each week of the out west stuff. Normally, I just the the team because since the hauler drivers or some of the guys that are team members that are switching cars over and stuff they have to stay out there so they'll get me a hotel room so i normally just stay out for three weeks so then by the time i get back from after the third week huh. you're into the first like two weeks of march and snow's just about like so far knock on wood mm. it's it's worked out pretty well so you're an independent contractor for richard childress racing when did that change so the year I moved back home, which would be no, I want to say it was fourteen that I moved back. So I want to say six years, five or six years that I've been back in Maine. Um, as soon as I moved back, Chip Ganassi Racing basically fired Derek Neeland and hired Derek Neeland Racing LLC in the same day. So you are responsible for your own insurance. I'm responsible for my own insurance. Um, my travel rental car the team provides the hotel room the food at the track um obviously i have to buy my own meals and stuff when i'm out there but you know that's the way the llc works you know when i when i fly like i get to write off part of my part of my uh travel and and stuff like that so liability yeah so it's it's uh it's pretty it's actually pretty good obviously the first year like i said was really tough like we just spent more money on flights than we probably really had to and whatever and now that you know carly you know helps me out on my travel and stuff she's your agent basically yeah she's basically my agent like each year we've done a little bit better and we figure out little nooks and crannies and ways to uh make things work a little easier what is your best travel hack for getting through an airport for renting a car for cutting time out of the whole process man you can't beat tsa pre-check I mean that's that's the way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, I just had to renew mine uh, a couple weeks ago. I've already had it for five or six years. So having TSA pre-check, you learn that you don't have to be there two hours before. Like you show up there, it's fear mongering, right? Yeah, forty-five, fifty minutes before your flight's going to leave. You know, so that gives you about twenty minutes before your flight's going to board. And I mean, you just get to TSA, you breeze right through, and it's just it's a shorter line, very easy to get through. I'd probably say that's the the best thing. There's a couple other things with with some flights and stuff like that, but favorite race that you've been a part of any level as a driver, as a spotter, any series, any track. Ah, uh, man, it's tough. I mean, obviously my first cup win is going to forever be you know, one of the highlights of my career, right? And that's going to be one that I'm going to be forever proud of, which was 2016 Michigan, I believe. When mm. and then we went on to win three in a row there. Um, and then obviously last year, getting the uh, Xfinity Series championship was a huge deal. And, uh, and then there's got to be three, right? So mm. we won the Truck Series championship this year uh, with Sheldon Creed in the two truck. That's wild. That last and restart. So, yeah, and that's what I was just going to say. Yeah. is So the last restart, we go from ninth to the lead in a green-white checker. So that was uh, that was phenomenal. So, I mean, those are three Was nitrous involved or just? No, just no. tires. <laughs> yes. No, a lot yeah. of the guys didn't take tires. We yeah. took tires. And, uh, you know, obviously they have the choose rule. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if we didn't have the choose rule, we would have started eighth. And who knows what would have happened. How, speaking of the choose rule, how much does the spotter play into that? Because it looks like organized chaos. How do they make it work every single race? Being a spotter, it's, it's, a, little, it's a little bit difficult because... It seems like each driver wants something different. So with Tyler, obviously my main deal, my cup, my cup deal um, with RCR, he wants me to call out. I mean, obviously, unless we're we're leading, 
but he wants me to call out just the top row and he wants me to start with the number four because if you know if he's wherever that's where he would start so i have to count it out whenever anybody starts picking the top after the first one picks it i go four six eight ten twelve whatever and like and i'll always let them know the lap that we're coming to the choose i'll say all right hey you're 17th right here so then that when we get to that point and i'm saying that he knows that if he chooses a top and he's at 18 he's going to be you know 18th or 20th so he's going to be a spot at least worse than what so it sounds difficult but it's Mm. actually become pretty easy um on my xfinity side i pretty much choose for them uh, and they like that. The, and oh. I had three or four different drivers this year, but uh, you had Alfredo, right? So I had Alfredo, I had Kaz, and I had Myatt Snyder. Pretty much all those guys wanted me just to choose for them. They didn't want to have to think about it. And I, I thought that was cool that they, hmm. you know, trust the, the opinion. Faith. What you, yeah, what you, whether it was right or wrong. Are you looked at as the the veteran guy now? Uh, as far as like on spotters. the team or up top, uh, up spotters. For example, you're working with drivers who are ten, fifteen years younger than you now. Right. Do you carry that reputation, or how do people find you? I would say now that you could call me weathered. I guess up mm. there, like I have been up there for quite a while. Like all of us spotters, we pretty much stand in the same spot every single year at the at the track that we go to we all have our mm. it's basically you know our same our spots that we we picked out in the past and that's where we have been and that's where we stay and you know even a couple races this year i think when uh the commentators had had chimed in and, and listened in on me spotting for whether it's sheldon or one of the xfinity guys or tyler um it seemed like they would say veteran spotter uh derek neal and so it's kind of kind of wild to think that it's it's been yes. this long and i'm considered a veteran now but the spotter seems to be the scapegoat for a lot of things when they go wrong as far as, you know, people on social media, you know, us, us quarterback, yeah. armchair quarterbacks. Uh, when you are making those split decisions, you know, obviously you're successful at Talladega having won that race with Tyler. Uh, you've done a lot of great things with Kyle Larson and on super speedways, how, how much can you see what's going on like say from a from the spotter stand to turn three i can see awesome um, really i have a really good set of binoculars that uh that i have uh, some guys like to use the shorter wide angle ones and they mm. can see pretty much the whole entire field in them but in in order to do what we do on speedways and as quick as things happen, you need to be able to be that much quicker and more assured on how clear they are when we're trying to fill certain holes. So, like, when they come off a of turn four and coming straight ass, like, mm. that's a super tight area for us to try to fit. So, several of us up there that do have these little bit of higher end, closer magnification binoculars, um, that helps out a lot. And I think a lot of guys are starting to actually go to those and getting rid of the wide angled ones. How much, are, how expensive are those? Uh, I mean, you could spend anywhere from two hundred to thirty five hundred dollars, depending on the ones that you get. Mine are kind of just—they're not thirty five hundred dollar ones. I mean, mine right. aren't even a thousand dollar ones, but they're—they're they're middle of the road. They're—they're they're plenty for what you need. Hmm. What's the scariest situation that you've been in uh, involved in racing? Uh man, there's there's definitely been a few. Um, actually, the so Brian Scott. Um, at Daytona in Xfinity when he hit Kyle Larson, and that's when Kyle got up into the catch fence. 
and yes. Xfinity and tore the nose off. Mm. Uh, we moved to the top to miss it, and at the last second, Kyle had gotten hit right up in front of us, and that was just a really hard hit for Brian and for Kyle. So that was scary. Um, last year, last year at Talladega, Kyle went barrel rolling, flipping off a of turn two. Uh, so that was scary. Cause, I mean, when you've been together six years that long, and as much success as Kyle and I have had in Xfinity mm-hmm. trucks, the couple cup wins that we were able to get, like y- you develop more of a friendship than anything. So like you see your friend flipping down the backstretch like that, you you get a little nervous. But kid's hard headed as heck. I mean, he's wrecked mm-hmm. way worse in sprint cars and stuff. So. Uh, that was scary. And then uh, this year with Anthony Alfredo, when we uh, wrecked at Kansas um, and flipped over there, that was that was a pretty gnarly, scary wreck. Talk about those moments between the actual wreck and waiting to hear uh, confirmation from your driver that, that that driver's okay. So the while the wreck is happening, you see how bad it is. It feels like forever until it's over and they come to a stop. And then when they come to a stop, it's... You know, I'm the first one, obviously. I'm the, I mean, I'm the one that's spotting. I'm the one that sees the situation. The crew chief can't see it. So um, I'm trying to gingerly talk to them hmm. and uh, keep them calm and make sure that they're okay once they're, they say that they're okay or whatever's going on. If uh, I don't get a response back immediately, I go to my official that's up on the spotter stand. But thankfully, any of the situations I've had, uh, they've been okay. But just slowly talk to them just let them know they're going to be okay that the help crew is on their way to get them uh, out of the car and uh, just to make sure they stay in the car and stay calm and and whatever you know that everything's over it's got to be a relief we had has there ever been a time when you've uh you've had to swallow hard because you haven't heard anything uh yeah there was one i want to say it was daytona or michigan with kyle because we hit the wall really hard in turn three at Michigan one year, just after they did the repave. Um, and then there was another time in Daytona through three and four that he took forever to respond. Mm. And it ended up being because uh, he got his unit a little bit. So ah, he, he was trying to catch his breath. Good so, call. Um, so it ended up, that, that was the sketchiest thing. But, you know, they obviously don't think about that. Like, hey, none of us know if you're okay or not. Like, we need to... We need to know. So you're in an interesting situation where uh, you're a tenured spotter and you have years of history with, say, a Kyle Larson. Beginning of last year, you're working with a different driver. Kyle's in a different situation this year. Say he and Tyler are mixing it up for any position. How much of your knowledge of Kyle's racing habits go into how uh, you can guide Tyler? Does that make any sense? Quite a bit, actually. So mm. just like you said, with working with Kyle for so long, I know how most of his moves or what he is going to do just from watching him do certain things with, with other drivers and other instances in, in years past. Um, you know, before COVID hit and before his unfortunate happenings mm-hmm. uh, this year, uh, we got to race against him for four or five races or whatever it was. So um, we And we did get a chance to race around each other a lot at Vegas and – Phoenix and Fontana. So, I mean, out of, out of the couple of races that we, we did get, um, we were able to race with him quite a bit. And I, I felt like, you know, I pretty much knew what he was going to do, but all those instances, we were always around a bunch of other cars too. So it wasn't just a matter of worrying about him. It was worrying about other people mm. as well. We've talked about how much you are uh, entrenched in the state of Maine. Do you still have your own race team? I know you're trying to sell your cars. 
Yeah, so uh, I had two cars a few years ago and then got rid of those, did some different stuff. You moved from the four, but I think most people know you from the from the number 90. There has to be a story behind why you're number 90. Right. So earlier in the show, we talked about uh, my grandfather and my father both ran at Beechurch back in the day. My dad ran back in 71. First super late mall that I bought, um, I got it, and I really didn't know what, what number I was going to be or, or anything, and... Then uh, I asked my mom. I was like, "Hey, what number was Dad again?" With because you were starting your own race team. This was different than what your family had done. This was your own entity, so you kind of wanted your own personality to it. Correct. Hmm. Yes. So I remember asking my mother. I'm like, "What number was Dad again?" Because I, I kept seeing all these old pictures of him, but he only raced for that year. So uh, she goes, "Oh, he was the 90." And I'm like, "Man, I, I go if I get the font right. I go. I bet that would be a." pretty decent number because like, I'm all about like it's got to hmm. look okay or whatever and uh, so I remember one day you know another long story that's short uh, got a hold of a buddy that did some decals for me and dad came by and, and saw it or came to work on it and it had the 90 on the side of it I just thought it'd be cool to run what uh, run what my dad used to run and then did that and it's just kind of stuck he likes it my family likes it and uh you know we've even embroidered t-shirts and stuff like that with the 90 on it so it's it's just mm. kind of a thing that uh i'm gonna stick with i think well you have the hashtag kneeling strong which i know goes beyond racing my dad had almost bought a lost a battle with MRSA. thankfully doctors found it just in time um when he was in icu and um he ended up did having to lose part of his left leg, uh, but now he has a prosthetic. He gets around better than I do, honestly. Wow. Uh, man has not changed at all. And when we did that uh, uh, fundraiser that you were that you were there with us, and uh, our our theme was the hashtag Neilan Strong. So really cool to be able to have the number ninety to tribute to my dad, but also uh, you know know that we're all still kind of thinking of what he went through and have that Neil and Strong thing as we go forward. Is there anything else that you want to accomplish in racing as a driver? Uh, in racing as a driver? Like, realistically. You know yeah. you're not going to be a cup driver. Exactly. But, yeah, no. Um, I think realistically, you know, I've made the Oxford 250 once. You need to tell the Brad Keselowski story. <laughs> So just I'll so put you on the hook for that. All one. right. So just so everybody knows, though, I, I uh, don't have anything against Brad anymore. Yeah. But I, was, I threw a middle fingers for like two years. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah trust me. I, well, I had him up against the inside of a hauler of whoever he was racing for. It was that bad? Yeah. I was running uh, Greg Peters' car, uh, the 09, actually, and the car was really really good we were fast we were fast through practice got a really bad draw which seemed to be the story of my life the last few times i've done the oxford 250 and uh this was one of the act style uh cars and didn't make it through in my first heat race second heat race uh i remember catching not glenn loose but his brother scott loose the 07 i catch him for i'm fourth so he was third he was the last transfer spot. I was two back behind him going down the front stretch, going to turn one, get one back, go down to turn three, he leaves a lane. I drive underneath him, and he hits the gas where I do, so I hit the gas, put my right front up in his door, and I missed it by, like, a foot, right? Like, it was mm. super close. Um, but it put me, it put me, I think, like, outside pole or third or something like that for the last chance race. And... Uh, Brad started either was directly behind me or he was directly in front of me, front of me, but kitty corner. And uh, I ended up getting the lead. It was a twenty lap race, the last chance race. It wasn't fifty for some reason that that year, but uh, I get to the lead. And I got 
it was all but a straightaway lead. Caution comes out, three to go. Crap, you know? Yeah. I want to say something else, but I'm like, crap, you know? <laughs> and uh, so Green Flag comes back out. He's second. I'm first. The guy behind me in third didn't get a good start. So I go to bail it down into one, and I'm covering the brake, and all of a sudden, like, my left front's tight to the curb, landing into turn one. And I didn't hear inside or anything because when you look back at any video or whatever, he wasn't. But Brad had drug break when he saw the hole behind between me and the third place guy, ducked down in behind me, and he drove off in there trying to get under me, which I was already against the curb. He hops the curb, hits me in the left rear bumper cover, like the only the last three inches of it. So I'm dead sideways, save it. But here goes him and two or three other guys. So I long story short. We get the white flag. I did pass a couple of the other guys. I finished third. Brad ends up getting moved by Dale Verrill, which was awesome. Like, I was so happy he moved him. <laughs> Dale Verrill moves him on the last corner of the last lap. Dale wins. Brad finishes second. I'm third. I get to the pit pad. I get out of the car, and Greg's like, yep, you can go ahead. I'm going, okay, good. So this time I am spotting a NASCAR for trucks and Xfinity, but he's a cup driver. Mm-hmm. And uh, Does I know he I can- know you at this point? No, but Brian Scott flew up on the plane with him to watch me because Brian had had his name on my car. So he knew I was there, and he saw the BrianScottRacing.com on the side of the car mm. every time he had to start by me, right? So he goes, yeah, you can go down there. I go, all right, so I go down there. I get to the pick. I get to his crew. What was crazy is everybody knew who I was because I'm from Maine, and they're all fr- you know from mm. Mainers helping him. They move out of the way and let me go right to him. I grabbed him by the, by the uh, suit, and he, he was a lot scrawnier than like he actually runs and works out now whatever mm-hmm. he's in better shape and I grabbed him I threw him up against the the trailer I just remember telling him like if we weren't both involved in the same sport I go I'd blacken your eye and like <laughs> I I was so so mad like I, I was like my buddy flew up here with me I go you were already in the race I go you weren't even inside of me and right. this that and the other thing and he goes I think the thing that made me the most mad he's like which car were you again I'm like oh come on oh. you know exactly which car I was you know I was the only one that had a reason to be mad. I don't. I'm less of a fan again. So just hearing that story, it's all good. But I mean, yeah. then then a handful of years down yeah. the road, um, I didn't wasn't spotting the race, but uh, he owned a truck team. They didn't have a spotter, not for him, but for another guy driving for them. Um, was it Tyler? It was not Tyler. No. Um, I, the names were on the tip of my tongue. I can't get it. Blaney, up. Austin Terrio, no Chase it, Briscoe. No, it wasn't one of the more successful ones. It was okay. somebody, yeah. Right. Um, but anyway, they needed a spotter, and I was already there, and I ended up spotting for his truck or whatever. And I remember tweeting at him like, "Hey, you know, <laughs> I've let everything go. I'm spotting for one of your trucks now, or yeah. whatever." But life goes on. It's That's all good. neat, man. I still love racing. Um, but obviously, you know, spotting is my job and it's how I make my living and I love doing it. But I think my biggest thing is I, I really enjoy working with, with Rusty, being able to help him out. Um, I sponsor, you know, Kate Ray and um, Brandon Barker and uh, Joe Pastore, Nick Cusack, you know, a couple other people. Like, I just love seeing my friends and giving back to the short track community. And you and I talked about this earlier at lunch i think at the end of the day someday when i die i hope they said you know man that guy really did a a lot for the sport what was it like to have rusty and nick cusack uh have that incident earlier last year as a a sponsor did you first see that on speed 51 so i did see it on speed 51 i remember texting both of them like almost simultaneously i'm like 
all right, like, you know, what the hell happened here? What, I go, out of all the cars on? out there, those two, you know, you two had to get together. And uh, both of them chalked it up to just being a racing deal. Yeah, they end up yeah. racing hard the rest of the year with uh, with no issues. So, yeah. uh, but at the end of the day, like, you know, I don't have any stake in any of those cars. I am just strictly, I mean, obviously Rusty's family. So he mm. obviously, I want to see Rusty do the best and I try to do as much as I can with and for him. Um, but, you know, everybody else is you know they're they're friends of mine and i want to see everybody do well and the reason that i help out is i'm fortunate enough to be able to help out and i want to do it name vintage race.org that's right <laughs> become a member today dot org hey so derek um you know you still stay connected to short track racing you kind of have the best of both worlds you're you know you're involved with big nascar you have uh friends and yourself involved with uh, short track racing where do you see short track racing in five years uh, so I think it took a little bit of a hit, obviously, if, you know, a handful of years ago, whenever the economy and stuff like that crashed. And then you slowly started seeing it coming back. Um, and then, honestly, I, I feel like with as much as this whole COVID thing put a damper to everything, I feel like for the most part, most of the tracks did pretty well. Um, I was actually talking to somebody the other day, and I feel like the best thing that short tracks can do going forward if the COVID thing keeps lasting through 2021 is to keep trying to do things with Speed 51 or these other little TV broadcasting, whatever it may be, these little broadcasting companies. So that way you know, like Beechurch, I think they were allowed 250 fans or something like that this year Mm -hmm. when yes, something like that. So, you know once that gets to be the 200 or 250 or whatever that was and those people have to get turned away like they should still be able to somehow watch it, but the track should still be able to get a small fee off of that as well. Mm. So I think as long as all these little tracks and short track racing can get something to where all the fans can still interact the way that they want to, if they can't be at the track. Cause I know if it were me, I want to be at the track. Like I'm, I'm at the NASCAR races and I'm looking at race monitor whenever there's, you know, our car's not on track or whatever. So, I try to follow it as much as possible. So I think a lot of those other diehard fans would do the same thing. Um, but to fully answer your question, I, I think that as long as we can get through this whole COVID thing, I think we were on the upswing of, of uh, you know, people coming back and or mm-hmm. new people coming in. And uh, I think it'll keep continuing to grow. I think the people who own racetracks right now who have been around for a long time are the, uh, the survivors and the, the forward thinkers also like the fact that there's a new generation of ownership coming into local short track racing and the people that are coming in are are lifers and people who aren't into okay it didn't turn a profit the first year or second year i'm out yeah those are the people that we need so it's it's great to see that blood come in absolutely and uh the people that are are you know who have owned tracks and the families that have owned tracks for a number of years uh, the Cusacks come to mind. The Jordans come to mind. Uh, they're the lifers as well. I think you need to have lifers. I totally agree. So you're an independent contractor for Richard Childress Racing. What do you got coming up uh, this year? RCR is probably the most loyal race teams I have seen in NASCAR as of late. And having said that is you see a lot of familiar faces at RCR years down the road like they once you're part of their RCR family mm. they tend to 
keep you around as much as possible, even if it's moving the job or job title around. Um, but you know, they've been working super hard on uh, getting the bodies to be exactly where they want. Obviously, the and rules nuke. package are and stuff like that. Hmm. There's obviously so you know not much room for wiggle room and stuff. But the, you know, there's a lot of stuff that goes into the undercarriage of the cars with the uh, crush panels and and stuff like that. So. I think you saw the first half of the year, both the three with Austin, Dylan, and then Tyler in the eight, uh, the first half of the year, both cars were phenomenal. Like they were, you know, top 10, top 15 almost every week. Um, how much is, is that RCR versus how much is that Chevy's comeback? Uh, I, I think it's a little bit of, I think it's a little bit of both, but I, I just think that RCR has put the right people in the right spots at the right time Mm. and they've gotten you know we still have some work to do i'm not going to say that we're perfect because we're not Mm. we've gotten better like even when i was at ganassi and racing against the rcr cars you know it wasn't very often that you would see the rcr cars in front of any of us but now it's to the point to where they have come that little bit and now they are the top 10 top 15 car um we probably fell off a little bit more um than the three did the second half of the season. Uh, for whatever reason, it seemed like some of the tracks that we went back to a second time, we seemed to struggle with a little bit more. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a rookie year. Like, it, there's only so much you can expect. This stuff is not easy. When you get to Cup, it is not, you know, some of those other divisions of where it's just 10 of the best. You know, now it's got, you know, you got 38 or 40 Cup guys, and 25 to 30 of them have all done something that has made them worthy of being in that in that series I want to thank Derek for taking time out of his schedule I happened to catch him in a very small window of time that allowed him to uh, sit down and, and shoot the bull with us for a little while next time on the open trailer podcast we head to down east Maine talk about racing in the county and how dangerous that could be there were cases where the lights went out and mm. we continued racing why? Why? <laughs> it was that uh, that passion to compete, the 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 get the bit in your teeth and, and go with, uh, mm. up on the wheel, whatever you want to call it, and uh, just the uh, passion to win. Winning was everything. Part one of a two-stage episode featuring the Alexander family. May Motorsports Hall of Famer Bob Alexander, Brett Alexander, and third-generation driver Wyatt Alexander. That's next time on the Open Trailer Podcast. Mm-hmm.